Hello, and welcome to Reflections with Raja, a podcast about finding purpose, storytelling, and navigating life. My name is Raja Butter, and I use they-them pronouns. Join me on this weekly journey as I talk to incredible people living thoughtfully every day. So today I'm so excited to have a dear friend and colleague and someone that I look up to um, and someone I think is a badass in the world, Dr. Joshua Moon Johnson, who um, I have had the pleasure of knowing for over a decade at this point. Um, So welcome to the show, Joshua. How are you today? Hi, Raja. Thank you for having me today. Super excited to be on this podcast. Um, I'm doing great. I'm sitting in my living room looking out the window and it's nice and sunny and windy. That's awesome. That's great. Um, I know we have been talking a lot about kind of particularly in this current political social time, how we're navigating just existing and navigating our own identities in this larger context and historical moment that we're in. So I'm so excited that you've made time to to talk about this stuff. And um, I know parts of your story, but I'm hoping to explore a little bit more of that. So let's just get started. Um, tell me, what's your story? My story, gosh, that's such a, a big question, but, but a nice question. And I think that probably depending on which day you ask me this question or even who asked me this question, that story might be a little bit differently. Um, but I think overall, some things that quickly come to mind as I think about my story, um, I was born and raised in uh, Gulfport, Mississippi, that's kind of on the coastal area, um, to um, a, a family, an interracial family. My mom is an immigrant woman from Seoul, South Korea. My dad's a white man, military man who's kind of been all over, and they're both um, ordained Pentecostal pastors. Uh, so I think that those elements of the, the home in which I was born into play a huge part in who I am today. Um, yeah, growing up as a uh, mixed race uh, kid in a small town, Mississippi, um, looking back at it too and understanding that uh, I know many people in Mississippi grow up and live in poverty, but I think reflecting back of growing up with what income and class means and me being in poverty and that that space, I think, frames who I am. Um, I'm the youngest of five kids, uh, two older brothers and two older sisters. Um, I think the things that I thought about as a child that I think about now still around gender and gender expression, gender identity revolve around um, that upbringing too. Both of my brothers are pretty, um, I guess what you would say, uh, gender conforming masculine men. And my sisters are both pretty feminine, gender conforming uh, female women. Um, and I've always kind of uh, explored gender between femininity and masculinity and understanding how I make sense of that, how society makes sense of that, how society has critiqued that. Um, I think that that's a huge part of my story as well. But I think through all those aspects of identity and I think that the idea of belonging has always kind of been woven out throughout my life and my story and influences the work that I do now as an educator, as a social justice activist, um, and how I hope to to bring purpose to this world and contribute to it through my story, um, my lens through education, my identity um, as a Christian person, as a queer person, uh, as a, you know, someone who is male-bodied, who is uh, uh, able to navigate spaces in many different ways, but also never belong to any space at the same time. So Yeah, I so appreciate that, especially that last point of, you know, 
having access to multiple but yet also not belonging and, and what that means. I think, you know, you and I talk about that both and a lot um, around how we navigate these different spaces, holding a lot of complex identities um, and, and what that means to how we show up, how we perceive, how we engage in this work and, and how we're able to have an impact in the community. So that, that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so tell me when you're thinking about, um, I, I think we talked a little earlier about like one of my inspirations for starting this podcast was I, I hated the question of what do you do when, when you meet someone at a party or whatever. So rather I was, you know, I think I was talking to a couple of friends who were like, well, how about we ask something around what's your gift to the world? So really around like, what is your purpose? How do you engage and how do you exist in this experience and the, and the universe? So my question to you, what is your gift to the world? Yeah. And I think that that's something I think about a lot. Um, I grew up in a, you know, a very religious, spiritual Christian household. So I think that from the early age, we talked about kind of purpose in life and mostly in kind of a Christian focused purpose in the world. But um, and my religious and spiritual identity has definitely evolved as I uh, broke ways from my parents and explored what kind of church and stuff I wanted to be as well. But I think um, that's something that I was appreciative of. And I thought about like gifts and even in our uh, Christian environment, we talked about spiritual gifts of how do you, what is your purpose in life? You kind of like your God ordained uh, ideas and how you should mm. be contributing to the world. And to me, that is still a huge part of me that definitely influences what kind of career that I chose, how I hope that I'm impacting the world and the people around me with that too. Um, and right now uh, for the last 20 years now, I guess I've been an educator and been in education in some ways. Um, and I've done that because I've often seen education as a way in which we can shape society and specifically those folks who um, are often excluded from society. That education as a whole is very problematic in so many ways, but it is still mm -hmm. a tool that can cause empowerment and bring social transformation and personal transformation. And so um, I try to understand how to put my gifts to work through educational environments. Um, I think some things that probably have been helpful for me that I'm able to um, challenge society to be better and to advocate for those who are most oppressed in our world. Um, and, and I think that that is a gift that I've probably hopefully is natural to me, but also that I've honed as well. Um, I grew up in an environment that on one spectrum is probably uh, the most radically Republican, conservative, um, Trump-loving whatever environment that could be. And that's kind of the space that I grew up in. And that's a very different space that I'm in now. So I think that I've been able to understand kind of um, spectrums of political and social ideas. Um, I also academically did my first two degrees in business and marketing. And then my next two degrees were in social sciences, LGBT studies, and higher education, um, mm. which were also pretty opposing uh, philosophically as well. Um, and so I think I've often found one of my biggest strengths or gifts is to be able to talk about um, often politicized social justice issues in a very human way. Um, so I'm able to talk to folks who have maybe kind of extremely opposing ideas around um, LGBTQ rights or uh, immigrant rights um, and to bring a human element to that and 
to talk to them in a way that depoliticizes it as much as possible and to hopefully offer a new perspective, um, a perspective that sees the humanity in these politicized issues. And so I think that that's helped me be very effective in talking to people in my personal life, but also talking to decision makers in specifically educational organizations. Um, so that's something that I think that um, I'm happy that that's a, a gift or a skill that I've developed that's been able to make society better. Um, I hope another gift that I bring is the ability to be empathetic and support. Um, not really sure. <laughs> it's funny too now, as I just talk about so much that's going on in our world right now that even though you know I identify as a person of color, um, the the racial violence that's going on now does not impact me. The anti-black mm. violence that's going on, um, and I'm glad. Um, as much as it hurts sometimes that I can feel that pain mm. Um, mm. and I can empathize with people. Um, so it's always something that um, I'm not sure how that happens or where it comes from. I think if we knew how to teach empathy, we would live in a different world. Um, mm. But uh, I'm a feeler. I hopefully can be sensitive and attuned and have emotional intelligence to uh, gauge what those around me or those in our society are feeling um, and to be able to be a voice and to be an advocate for those who often don't have that privilege or opportunity to be able to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I so appreciate the, the, the nuanceness that you bring to that conversation and the ways, you know, we name that we sit in a really interesting place as Asian Americans in this world. Right. And I think for you also, I, I love the way you talked about just, you are a, as Gloria Anzaldúa said, you're kind of someone that sits in the borderlands and in so many different spaces. And, and you're, in some ways, I think you've kind of made it your own and you're so comfortable navigating that space and you're so good about being contextual in the when and how you show up and what you do. So I've always appreciated that about you is that you're so in tune with yourself and so in tune with how to show up for others. So I really have always appreciated that. Yeah, and I think I definitely, you know, as a multiracial person, I mean, I think within communities of color, um, Asian American API people have fit in this awkward place in um, society, specifically around kind of this model minority myth or this proximity to whiteness. Um, so I think there, and then me being um, white as well, half white, um, and having that opportunity to pass as white oftentimes, or even my name is Joshua Johnson. Um, can be interpreted as very white. So, um, and so many times I think I've just wanted to be included in a group. And so um, latching onto, I'm a person of color because that felt like a place in a community of belonging. Um, but realistically also understanding that racism does not always impact me in that same way, um, which sometimes makes me feel excluded, but also, um, also is the reality that I, can hopefully understand racism in a way and also use the kind of the, that power that I have to shape organizations and systems to be better and to do better with that too. And so I think that um, that's still something I'm learning um, and trying to grow and to understand. Uh, my last couple of positions have been equity focused or multicultural focused and even questioning, am I the right person to be in a position like that? Um, mm. It probably should be somebody else who has maybe a bigger investment in the game. Um, 
so I think that those we're always evolving, we're always learning, we're we're always trying to understand um, how does racism look in our lives and in the world, and also what role do we play, um, and when are we taking up too much space and too much power, and um, how do we use that space and that power for good too? Yeah, yeah, I, I so appreciate the way you named all that. That's really interesting. It makes me think a lot about that question that I'm asking myself a lot nowadays is like, how do I fit into this larger question? Not to make it about myself, but to be part of the solution. Uh, and how do I both, how does that require me to do my own personal work around the ways that anti-blackness has been embedded into my own cultural experience and growing up in the way that I was brought up and how am I then also engaging in liberation work as in solidarity because it's all of our liberation interconnected. Um, and was are actually going to manifest the change that we want to see, which is, I think is really important and, and hard right now. Yeah, yeah, and I think with many multiracial people, especially multiracial people who have European heritage, um, I know for me and my family and in many other folks with similar backgrounds, um, having that um, aspect of whiteness, that whiteness is the part that um, gives you access to spaces, gives you access to knowledge and structures. Um, and then on the flip side of that, it's often um, you feel this uh, shame or like that, that kind of other racial ethnic identities are things that you don't want to be proud of. Or mm. you can... Um, kind of be in communities of color, but feel better about yourself because you're mixed with whiteness. Um, and so it's like in communities of color, you can be kind of the, the best version of those folks as well. And I think we still see that with many times in racial justice movements, the people who are the, spokes, uh, the spokesperson for social movements are often folks who um, are multiracial people of color, white folks. Um, mm. And so that's always something that's like, okay, and I think it possibly could be because um, they can navigate white worlds probably easier. Um, they're used to being around white people a lot and talk the way that white people will listen. Um, and they're less threatening to white people. Um, and I think when I became the director of the Multicultural Student Center at UW-Madison, that's something that um, one of my staff members uh, you know, directly pointed out, and um, I was the first non-Black director of that center. Mm. And um, it was pointed out in a great conversation, just kind of one-on-one -on -one talking. It was like, well, everyone thought the other directors were aggressive and scary, but you show up here as a mixed-race Asian person. Um, other elements, too, I'm small, I'm femme, um, that people would listen to me um, in a different way. Um, so, so that was definitely a, a complicated space to be in. Um, and I think that was probably one of the first times that that was pointed out in that way. And it totally made sense too. Yeah, that's powerful. And then those moments are so beautiful, right? In some ways they're hard moments, but it allow us to be able to sit with how we show up and what that means for us in these conversations. Hmm, that's beautiful. So given all the things that you've just named, all important things, what is something that we can all do to make this world better? Yeah, I think the first part is um, listening, uh, understanding that we have so much more to do um, and so much more to undo. Um, I think about 
I've been in probably a social justice focused role as a full-time job for a decade now, probably, and knowing that I still have so much more processing and learning and unlearning to do. So I think that Mm -hmm. that's one thing that I think we all need to be committed to. This is a lifelong journey, and this is not something where I'm going to get a certificate or an award and be like, I'm done. I'm one of the good white people or good whatever people there are. Um, I think that that's definitely one thing. Um, I think the other piece is that I, and I I think in this time in our country too, everyone is like, oh, I'm going to do my self-work and I'm going to do my learning and reflection, which is great. But that's not all. You have to do more than that. Um, And so it's where I, I think it was a meme or something where it's like, okay, you know, black people are dying or being protesting in prison and white people are starting a book club. And Mm. and so it's like, okay, well, that's, you know, that's not enough. Um, So yes, we need to learn and unlearn, but you also have to be brave and vocal and action focused too. Um, Find ways to support movements, fundraise for movements, make phone calls for movements. um, And also understand that change happens in your sphere of influence too. When you're Mm. in that meeting or you're making that decision or that policy, uh, speak up. (laughs) Um, Yes, you need to know things to speak up. Yes, you need to know things to change policies. Um, But even if you don't know exactly what to say or do, just acknowledge something doesn't seem right here. Um, I feel like we might be excluding someone or this might have a negative impact on blank population. even if you don't know what to do, do something. Cause I think most of the time when we don't know what to do, we just kind of let things go the way they are. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think that's so important of something that I've been thinking about a lot, particularly around two questions to, to sit with whenever I'm trying to make like organizational level decisions is like whose voice is not at the table. And if they were at the table, how would this influence mm. our decision? You know, and to, I think to get to your point of like, how do we actually, mm embody inclusion even if beyond just saying okay well we have the multiracial person so we're good but rather the like not just tokenization but going beyond to actually think through how are we actually making these decisions how is that shifting the conversation what does that mean and how is that actually influencing our organization as a whole yeah i think you know definitely other things with that as well as really checking our own motivations for why we made this decision or why we've done that, that act or whatever it might be too. And I think especially in this day and age where we're really seeing shifts in what activism looks like shifts in people's commitment to a current movement, black lives matter. Um, and so I think really checking our motivations and really understanding performative allyship and performative activism. Um, yes, we want to do stuff, but making sure we're processing why we're doing it. Is it really impactful? Is it really for me to, not be shamed that I didn't do enough? Or is it really a, this is what needs to be done to actually make change in our world as well? Um, I I grew up in a a community where mission trips were really important. Um, Mm. And I did mission trips to other countries, you know, as a youth. And so I think some of the things around performative allyship and really questioning who gains in this situation has been something I'm processing and um, thinking about, you know, for me as a 17-year-old, I had to raise about $1,000 to go to uh, rural Jamaica to support, you know, these, you know, of course, in that that context of like, oh, these poor Black uh, folks who need support from us, wealthy U.S. Americans. Um, if I really wanted to help, I probably would have just raised that $1,000 and mailed it to them. 
Um, <laughs> but I mean, realistically, was it about me or was it about them? And I think so many times I see social movements and activism that look the same way is that um, we do things to feel better about ourselves or for us to have this specific experience um, when getting to the point around um, what's the issue and what actions can we do to improve that issue um, with my personal gains outside of that picture too. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's been something I've been really thinking about what we can actually do to make this world a better place. Um, and then I think that the kind of another piece that's come up a lot around especially conversations that are difficult where folks from dominant groups are afraid to share to participate because they're going to get something wrong. Um, and you know what? We're all going to get something wrong. And I think that if we mm -hmm. avoid talking about these things, we're never going to grow. We're never going to be even sometimes publicly held accountable for our bad thinking and misthinking and, you know, mislearning. So I think that being able to offer grace to folks um, and allow folks to mess up. Um, yeah, we need to hold folks accountable. Yeah, we need to push them to grow. Um, but, but being able to kind of, I don't know, this cancel culture, sometimes people need to be canceled. Like that's for real. <laughs> but also <laughs> a, assessing where that is. And I totally get where that comes from too, is because um, there's a lot of communities and a lot of us who have been traumatized and who have been hurt. And so if I think right. you're going to hurt me again, I will cut you out. Um, mm. I think it's that, is it, I may be getting this totally wrong, a Maya Angelou quote that's like, if someone shows who you who they are the first time, believe them. Um. Um, <laughs> and I'm really not good at quotes. I just kind of say quotes and put anybody's name to it sometimes. Um, some quote like that. And I really do believe that sometimes I'm like, uh -uh, I'm done with you. Um, mm. and I'm trying to be better at that as well, that I don't cancel people so quickly or, um, and if they apologize and I feel like it's real and it's meaningful and they have some actions behind their apology, um, how can I, how can I work with that and offer some grace? Mm. Yeah. It's the both end again, I think for me of like, how do you hold people accountable at the almost like graceful accountability or something like that? Yeah. So Joshua, in all this work that you do and all the ways that you bring just beauty into the world, um, what nourishes you? I think conversations like this definitely nourish me. So I, I appreciate this. Um, I, I even love going on things like job interviews and stuff like that, too. Mm -hmm. um, I tell great stories. And as I'm telling them or even prepping for them, I process a lot of these things. And, and I think it's super rare that we do process some of these big questions. So I think that that's helpful for me, that nourishes me, that helps me get refocused. Um, so I feel honored to have folks in my life that I do get to have real conversations with. Um, so conversations like this with you, Raja, uh, another dear friend, Joy Hoffman, having these conversations, and then um, a few other folks in my life that um, I, I know that many people in our world don't have spaces or people like this to have real deep conversation and to be vulnerable with too. So, so that's really helpful to me for sure. Uh, I still am trying to find my place for religious and spiritual identity and growth and purpose. Um, mm. I am involved with three different churches right now. Uh, and that's something that I've struggled with for probably about 15 years of finding 
a spiritual home that's a place that I feel personally supported and nurtured and a place that I can give back to my spiritual community too. Uh, mm-hmm. But even though every organization is imperfect in many ways, um, I still find a lot of nourishment from those places. I think a lot of it is too in our world. It's always busy, busy, busy and go, go, go. And so on a Sunday morning when right now, when I watch uh, a church service online or on YouTube or whatever it is, sure. for me just to get to spend an hour in my week to to think and to reflect, to think about what's important in our world when that one person at work has been really annoying me or whatever that is, it's like in the bigger picture, what really matters? And also perspective of inner life, there's always going to be obstacles and always going to be challenges. And I faced similar challenges and I overcame those before too. And why would this be any differently? So I think that that time to pause and reflect definitely nourishes me. And so I I appreciate that part of my life um, and my upbringing to learn those things too. Um, So that's been great. Um, Other things, uh, I think these kind of self-care things, uh, dancing has always been a huge part for me just to kind of... Mm music is important to me. And so kind of connected to that spiritual thing, like uh, the praise and worship music at my church always kind of helps me find joy and life um, and other types of music too. And being able to dance with that. Uh, I think that that's a place that physically, emotionally, spiritually, all these things kind of connect. And it's just like a release and a joy. And, and that always helps me feeling good. Um, and it burns a lot of calories too. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. I actually thought of you the other day. I watched the movie Footloose for the first time. I'd never seen it before, uh, and it talks about kind of the the idea that you know dancing is a form of worship, and and it's always been for me just having grown up doing traditional Indian classical dancing and stuff, which is very much connected to mythology and, and Hinduism. And so I don't know why, but when I was watching that movie, I just I thought of you. So that that makes sense. Oh, yeah. The church that I grew up in, we had a dance team and like it was a very hippie evangelical (laughs) church with like 30 people in it that met in a warehouse. Um, And we had a flag team and a dance team. And of course, I was I was the lead on the dance team. (laughs) And my mom and I did this like flag dance choreography and she's I was probably 10 years old and she sewed me a glittery gold shimmer top. <laughs> oh my God. So I, I need pictures of this. I need to find that top. I bet it still fits me. <laughs> and <laughs> how did my family not know? <laughs> I still am sure it's them. If there's a nature versus nurture queer argument, my mom totally <laughs> That's funny. helped me. So yeah, so that was definitely uh, a great part of growing up that um, the arts and dance and even, you know, my parents have been pretty vocal about being um, very against same sex relationships. Mm. One thing that I would say was very affirming is my mom never really uh, uh, followed traditional gender norms or gender rules. And so she was the one who put me in ballet was that when I was a kid and uh, mm. I don't think she ever cared that I played with all my sister's Barbies and that I would put on their dresses and run around the house and put on plays. And um, I don't ever remember that being a huge issue with my mom. 
Um, my dad probably just stayed quiet. I don't know what he thought, <laughs> but yeah. So I think that 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 upbringing um, and those things connected to dance and religion and spirituality. Uh, that's yeah. That was an interesting part of my gr- growing up in a different type of Christian environment. Hmm. I think every time we talk, I'm always amazed at how many similarities there are in our experience and, and our, our kind of past life history. So it's always fun to learn. Um, just as a, another question, in all the work that you do, who are some folks that inspire you? Raja, you inspire me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> not, just, not just because this is your <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah, I, well, I, we, I won't focus on this too long, but I think one thing I really appreciate about you is you're so entrepreneurial, independent, and fearless. I even remember like with Semester at Sea, where I was offered Semester at Sea, and I was so afraid to quit a job and not have one, so I turned it down. It went to a typical, you know, steady salary job and then you got it you're like i'm done bye i'm gonna sell the world <laughs> and i was like ah and you trusted the universe and it all came and worked out wonderfully and i, I need to be more adventurous like that as well uh, so that's something i think other folks who inspire me i mean i think that i have a number of folks who are kind of just in in the world um and i've always struggled with the idea of having mentors when people would talk about that, especially student affairs world, they love mentors. And I never really could identify a mentor. I was always like, I don't know. Why don't I have a mentor? Why, why does no one see me worthy of being mentored? Um, and and I know there's lots of complexities because people often are mentored by people with similar identities. And I'm like, oh, my identity is always so confused or mixed that maybe people just don't identify with me. But um. Mm. I do say that I have uh, I have an academic mentor, um, Lemuel Watson, who was the chair of my dissertation committee when I was doing my doctorate degree, and now he's the dean of the School of Education at Indiana University. Um, and I came into that program uh, when I was kind of just trying to figure out how my sexual identity and my religious identity made sense together. Um, one of the things I first, when I met him, he was like, yeah, I interviewed for this job, and I told the uh, president, I love Jerry and I love Jesus. That's his husband and God. And he was like, and I'm not going to apologize. And I was like, who is this person? And then he um, was so wonderful with just being brave at who he was um, as a queer black man administrator um, who was a Christian. And so I think he kind of modeled how deeply woven the personal and the professional are together. You can't separate one without the other. Um, so I connected with him and was inspired by him and his career um, and his research that really has fostered me as an academic, as an administrator, and as a researcher, but also as a person. Um, Mm. And so that's been probably 15 years, and I still um, have the privilege of collaborating with him pretty regularly at the same time, too. And so um, I think that that's someone who inspires me, um, who I'm sure has uh, mentored and guided many of our scholars around social justice and equity within U.S. higher education. So um, that's been helpful. Um, I'm also, I think, lastly, really inspired by so many of my students who I've worked with over the last few decades, um, specifically our student activists, who I think when I was at that age as an undergrad, I, one, didn't have the level of social consciousness to critique a system. I kind of just 
kept my head low if I didn't agree with anything. I would just not speak up or not even really understand. I probably internalized a lot of the shame that our systems of higher education put onto us. Mm. Um, and then I started to see some of our students who had the knowledge and wisdom to critique those systems. And I think more importantly, had the bravery to challenge those systems and did not care what they would lose for that as well. Mm. And so I think when I've seen our activists who um, put their, sadly, their academic career on the line and their personal well-being on the line and sometimes their personal safety on the line, I think that those folks know what they're fighting for and they're committed to um, and they're unapologetic about that. And so I think that mm. I find inspiration in that when I think about our students who have very little social capital, um, they find the power that they have and they use it to change their institution. Um, and I think it's great that they see our institutions, our college and university campuses as their home and they want their home to be better. Um, and so that probably hit me as kind of a reflection point. Um, I think probably when I was at you know, UW-Madison again, and this was when Black Lives Matter was really coming to our college campuses, that so many times I heard our administrators, not just on that campus, across our nation, talking about student protesters like they were a nuisance or they were spoiled brats, um, which mm. some of them are, yes. Um, but at the same point, these were like fearless leaders who were going to give it everything they could to transform their world. Um, so that inspires me. And it's also great to see over like a decade now, the things that they've gone on to do, the organizations, the nonprofits, the educational institutions that they're constantly shaping now too, and can't wait to see that they're in political offices and whatever else things that they go on to do at the same time too. Yeah, I think that's always fun to see kind of where they are now. I think I've, I've seen one of my former students just got his master's degree this week. And so just say it's fun to see their journeys and how they've evolved. And, and I think for me, at least it feels good to know that like we've been a part of that journey. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think we, we can be activists in different ways or sometimes in the same way. <laughs> mm -hmm, exactly. Anything else that's on your heart that you want to share, Joshua? Uh, we're, in, we're in an interesting part in our world and in our, in our country and how things are shaping specifically around um, what social justice looks like and means. And I'm, finding hope uh, when so many days it seems like there is no hope, finding hope now and that there's, there's good progress um, and that we can find the energy to sustain this movement. Yeah, I hear you. And um, hopefully we can send that positive energy into the universe so that this moment is sustainable for, for the long run. Thank you so much, Joshua. I really appreciate your wisdom and insights. Uh, for those of you that are listening, check out the bio um, in the description and more information about Dr. Joshua Moon Johnson. Uh, and join us next time for another episode of Reflections with Raja. And the song you heard today is called Base of Heart by Poddington Bear. Feel free to check out more episodes on Podbean or any of the other platforms available. Go to www.rajabutter.com for more info.